Healthwise. Welcome to episode 20 of the HealthWise Report. This is Sarah Kane from the HealthWise Report, and I'm joined by Thomas Corrier. This is a special edition episode. We are interviewing famous psychologist and author Bruce Levine. He has written three books. He wrote Common Sense Rebellion. He has also written Surviving America's Depression Epidemic, How to Find Morale, Energy, and Community in a World Gone Crazy. And finally, he's also written Get Up, Stand Up. Bruce Levine is also our winner for the 2011 Troublemaker of the Year Award. The following interview is going to be in the bonus material for our upcoming documentary, Prescription for Manslaughter. In the meantime, while listening in, feel free to check us out at healthwise.org. Wise is spelt W-Y-Z-E. At our site, you can learn more about us and check out our audio archive. Again, we can be found on the internet at healthwise.org, with Wise being spelt W-Y-Z-E. Now, we'll get to the show. Oh, hey there, is this Bruce? Yes. Hey, this is Sarah from the HealthWise Report. We've got Thomas on the line. Hi, Sarah. Hey, yeah, how are you? Hey, Bruce. Hi there. Hey, we've been looking forward to uh, finally talking to you. Good. Um, I know we had you scheduled for a radio show or audio show a long time back, and everything fell apart at the time. We're sorry we couldn't have you on. We had essentially a technical meltdown with our equipment, and then we got tied up in other things and, you know, Right, that's the way it goes. Anyway, we're finally glad to talk to you, and we're both you know, fans of your work, and we've, we've used your articles on our site several times now. Right, right, that's great. So how are you feeling today? I'm doing fine here. It's a, Randy, you might hear some crackling of thunder in the background there, because it's raining. I'm in Cincinnati here, and we've got a heavy, heavy thunderstorm here going on. Oh, okay. All right, fair enough. Uh, would you like to start, Sarah, or you want me to go ahead? Um, I'll go ahead. I'd like to start off by kind of asking you how you got into psychology, how you kind of um, took a completely different path to most other people in your profession. Well, I've always been interested in psychology, and uh, unfortunately, pretty early in the game, I got disappointed by uh, academic psychology and uh, professional psychology. Well, I remember first having an internship as an undergraduate in a psychiatric ward and already beginning to realize that people were treated in a pretty dehumanizing fashion. And it wasn't just the electroshocks, and it wasn't just the psychiatric drugs. It was the psychologists as well who would use these simplistic, basic animal training, behavior modification on people that 
almost all the patients um, felt how disrespectful, patronizing, humiliating it was. And it was obvious, I think, to, it was obvious to me as a 19, 20-year-old observer that this whole profession had major problems to it. And when I got to graduate school, I had hoped things would change some. And what I found was there were certainly some students who agreed with me, and a lot of these students just quit. Some of the best therapists that I've ever met are just refused to jump through the hoops, the academic hoops, the uh, training hoops of uh, dealing with professionals who uh, they were distasteful. They were dis- they, these kind of folks who were kind of making them do these kinds of things that they didn't believe in. They just outright quit. So what I found was going through the profession was that a lot of the best people got out of it because they realized that people were not really kind of being treated in a respectful way. And, and who remained, and this was the really scary part, who remained in the profession were a lot of authoritarian people. And by that I mean authoritarian were people who just complied to any and all authority without critical thinking. And if they were in a position of authority, they uh, demanded compliance um, without questioning. And so this was very troubling. And just really by accident, maybe because I didn't have a, you know, I wasn't born into wealth and had a bunch of different uh, options, I stayed in the profession. It was bad economic times in the United States in the late 70s, early 80s, not as bad as today, but almost as bad. And so I stayed in it and just kind of suffered through a lot of what you needed to do and vowed that when I got out that I would uh, certainly talk about not only problematic treatment, but also the whole socialization process, the whole professionalization process that creates psychiatrists, psychologists, other mental health professionals who just simply do not question authority and, in fact, in fact, pathologize those who question authority. And if you take a look at a lot of these so-called mental illnesses in the DSM, DSM DSM-IV, some of them are obvious, obvious pathologizing of people who question authority, and some of them are a little bit more subtle pathologizing of those who are non-compliant and non-conformist. But we could get into that later if you're interested. Yeah, like such as um, oppositional defiant disorder and so forth? Sure. Oppositional defiant disorder is the most obvious one that when I bring it up to most media, which is, this is um, the good news. I said a lot of things that were bad news, but the good news is, is that most media across the ideological spectrum whether they're left anti-authoritarians, libertarians, they start to laugh when I mention this thing called oppositional defiant disorder. They view it as some sort of a, I mean, they first think I'm being sarcastic. They think I'm, I'm joking. And I say, no, this is a legitimate mental disorder. I'm not legitimate in any kind of scientific sense, but a official, I guess that's a better word, official sign, mental disorder that came into being in 1980 in the DSM-3, and that was the year that a big flood of uh, childhood disorders came in. And so I described oppositional defiant disorder. You know, they usually assume I'm talking about something kind of like juvenile delinquency. And I tell them, no, you know, that's conduct disorder. You know, for, if you're oppositional defiant disorder, you're not usually doing anything even illegal. The official symptoms are often refuse to comply with adults, often uh, argue with adults, often have uh, irritate adults. And people, most people outside of the profession, across the political spectrum, they just start to laugh. They say, you guys got to be kidding. I was like that. Everybody was like that. I say, well, yeah, most people were like that, but not your, survivor, not your psychologists and psychiatrists. 
those are the folks who just pretty much did everything they were supposed to do. And then when they see folks who were rebelling, either obviously like oppositional defiant disorder, or more subtly, like a lot of these kids who are get diagnosed with attentional attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, who are just more cognitively rebelling, you know, this they, they view that stuff as so out of their range of experience that they uh, pathologize them, they medicalize them, they disease them. Okay, so you think that, you know, with a lot of these um, children, even with, with the elderly now, they're under direct control, whether it be of, you know, um, a parent, school teachers, or in the case of elderly in nursing homes and so forth, you think that a lot of the drugging is done for that sort of um, control over these fairly inexistent disorders? To... Sure, sure. And, and once um, this was common knowledge, and again, one of the real sad things that happened to the profession, one of the things that excited me when I thought about going into psychology in the 1970s were that there were still people like Eric Fromm, um, like uh, Thomas Saas, across the political spectrum. Thomas Saas probably would, I don't know what he would officially call himself, but most people view him as a like, libertarian psychiatrist. And here's Eric Fromm, who would call himself, I would suppose, a democratic socialist psychoanalysis. But what they had in common was they were anti-authoritarians. And they viewed in the 1970s, they were concerned, they wrote about this extensively, about the fear of using psychiatry, psychology, psychoanalysis as a tool to manipulate men. And that was an exact Eric from quote. And the sort of sad thing about modern days is that that sounds incredibly radical today. It did not. In the 1970s, those guys would be, if you were in a, an undergraduate in psychology, you would have learned about them in intro psych, an undergraduate course. That was not a radical view. That was a debate going on. It was a reasonable debate. Is, is psychology, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, social worker, is it being used to help people adapt to a society that uh, really is alienating, that maybe people should not be adjusting to? Or, you know, is that an, a great idea? Is that what psychology, psychiatry should be doing, just helping people adjust? That was a, a very uh, debatable thing. Today, it sounds radical, or, or when I bring it up, it sounds novel. It's not novel at all. People have been worried about this and been thinking about this for many decades. And as often the case, when things become their most extreme problem, as things get worse and worse, people don't bring it up and they don't even talk about it anymore. This, you see, happens, for example, with U.S. wars and all kinds of things. In, in the beginning, when we decide to get into one of these wars, people start, to, they're really debating it very seriously, Iraq war, Afghanistan war. And then as people just get used to it, and um, as more and more people even, in fact, oppose it, they just stop doing anything about it. And so you see a lot of those kinds of same things in psychiatry, that the more initially when they decided to just drug left no, leave no child left undrugged or whatever their policy that they began in the 90s was, whenever that happened, people were really concerned about lots of debate about this. And nowadays, um, it's just become more and more mainstream, and people who bring it up, they're considered dissidents or radicals or extremists or whatever case. So that's, that's the sad thing that's happened in psychiatry, but it's happened in a lot of other institutions in American society. I was, um, as a teen of the 80s, I was in the first generation of the Ridlin kids, mm -hmm. and I was one of those Ridlin kids. I had parents who were so authoritarian, so craving control and power, that they sent me to military school because they figured the military school could, quote, straighten me out better than they could. Apparently, I wasn't enough of a team player for the military school either because I got put on Ridlin there. And, of course, um, as a result of being one of the Ridland kids, 
I got to see a psychiatrist on a regular basis. And on one of those visits, I noticed in the paperwork that I had been described as a patient with a, quote, flat affect. And I looked at him. I looked at the doctor and said, doctor, what does that mean? And his reply was, and I'm not kidding, this is a quote. He says, that means you need a good ass kicking. Well, there you go. That's exactly it. And every once in a while, in these kind of private settings like you were in, I'm sure that that would never happen in any kind of public setting. You would never talk like that. But every mm -hmm. once in a while that you had the access, you know, so do I as a professional, to deal with these folks in private settings, and you really uh, uncover their deep, deep authoritarianism, their deep mm -hmm. sense that um, any, kind of per any person out there who's creating any kind of tension uh, through either disagreement or noncompliance is somebody who either um, needs a, in, your, in, in that particular phrase, an ass-kicking, or uh, worse, really, to be drugged into smithereens. I guess um, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, you know, some people, I guess, have a preference for one or the other, but I would think overall I would rather have my ass kicked than to have my brain um, destroyed with drugs or electroshock or whatever, although I guess if you get your ass kicked badly enough, that's no fun either. But, I mean, either way, I mean, these are, these are the kind of authoritarian controls, and, you know, part of it is, is you see this across the political spectrum, and you see it um, on the left, and you see it on the right. And traditionally, one of the things that happens to me when I'll talk on mainstream radio, which I call mainstream, the kind of conservatives and the you know Republicans, Democrat, you know liberal types, um, it's sort of shocking. They hate each other, but they don't realize that they're really both uh, two sides of the same coin. So I'll talk about this whole issue of you know kids who are you know not just just not paying attention in schools and they're being put on drugs. And so the uh, the liberals. You know, we'll say, well, no, they just need medication. You know, that's how basically, you know, they can be controlled in the classroom and, and sit still. Whereas the conservative Republicans will say, well, no, they just need an ass kicking. And, um, you know, it's basically two sides of the same coin. Whereas a very different world, okay, a very different kind of f folks who are uh, anti-authoritarians, um, whether they're left anti-authoritarians or right uh, libertarian anti-authoritarians, uh, they view it very differently. Their immediate reaction is, well, if somebody is creating some kind of disruption, um, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe not. Maybe they're creating disruption because you know they're selfish, they're criminals, they're you know they're stealing, they're lying, they're hurting other people. That's possible. But also, there's people who are creating disruption because they're willing to not comply to a dehumanizing situation. They may be the only kid in the class who's willing to say, this is boring. We all know it. This teacher is boring. They're not teaching us anything, and I'm not going to pay attention. And that creates tension, okay? But that's a healthy kind of anti-authoritarianism. That's what I think anyways. Well, one pattern we've noticed, I would say probably most of the people that get drugged out there on these SSRIs and so forth, they're not people that actually went into a doctor and asked for it. In most cases, they're on the medication because someone else wants them to be on the medication because they're an inconvenience and they need to be better controlled. Like, for instance, the, the two major categories are the elderly in nursing homes who need to be controlled and the young people whose parents want a chemical straitjacket for them or the teacher at school wants a chemical straitjacket for them. It just repeats. Very few people... I mean, you do have depressed people that go in and get medicated, of course. But um, 
it seems like the big push is on the people who really don't have the informed consent. The, the people right. Who I, I would say that that's where their drug companies have done, and that's where they've gotten, by the way, nailed for most of their illegal marketing. I mean, that's where they have gone in, um, especially with their anti-psychotic drugs nowadays. And it's not, it's just moved beyond using your kind of psychostimulants, Ritalin and Adderall and all that for your, you know, kids who aren't paying attention. And um, now um, the biggest, largest grossing drug in America these days are antipsychotics, which is phenomenal. I mean, when I was um, starting out and I was beginning in my career, I mean, almost nobody, I mean, to be on an antipsychotic, you know, it would be just incredibly rare. And in fact, if you look at the numbers, the whole industry was maybe a $250 million industry 20 years ago. And today it's over a $14 billion industry. Well, how did they do that? Certainly, we know how. We know that, you know, that they didn't even bother pushing and manipulating psychiatrists to diagnose people as psychotic. That would have been one way to go. That would have been a little bit more trouble. The easier way to go was this idea of off-label marketing which was to basically go and tell all doctors, not just psychiatrists, pediatricians, um, every physician they could find who could write a script, that if somebody's giving you trouble, write one of these scripts for Risperdal or Zyprexa or Seroquel, and it'll chill them out. And we, we know from recent um, court cases, Eli Lilly with other major drug companies, this is how they've gotten nailed because you're not allowed to do that. Doctors are allowed to prescribe damn near any drug for anything. Now, that's in our society, not a crime. So, you know, you could go in there and a, and a parent could tell a doctor and say, hey, my kid's acting up a little bit, and the doctor can go like, okay, well, let's give him Risperdal, not even diagnose him with anything. For, in our society, that's not a crime. But what is um, not allowed, what is illegal, is for, say, Eli Lilly to go into doctor's office is, and say, um, you know, uh, you, can, you can maybe think about uh, prescribing this as Zyprexa of ours, you know, for patients who aren't even psychotic, even though it's an antipsychotic, you know, you can think about it because it'll work pretty well, and that's not allowed. And they've gotten nails, but for them, a million dollars, two million dollars, these fines, it's just the cost of doing business. A billion dollars um, is what they've gotten fined for them, cost of doing business, so they keep on doing that. And that's proof, really, of exactly what you're saying. They know, the drug companies know, that the big markets out there are populations of disruptive people, young people, old people, who uh, society, institutions, families feel like uh, they need to manage, and they're going to use whatever the heck they can. And uh, these heavy-duty antipsychotic drugs, they definitely will chill you out, that's for sure, make you more compliant. Yeah. Well, in the case of social anxiety disorder, that was created by the maker of Paxil. That didn't come from the psychiatric community. That was something marketed by the maker of Paxil, and then suddenly everybody just accepted it like, oh, yeah, social anxiety disorder, you know, and suddenly it's in the DSM and everything else. Kind of reminds right. me of right. It reminds me of the thing for le restless leg syndrome. That never existed until there was a drug for it. They actually had to create a disease to sell the drug because the, <laughs> the drug that treats restless leg syndrome had no other use. Right, and, and what you're talking about is a society, now you're getting to the more deeper core problem, is, is that when you've got um, society run by huge entities that only care about profit, which are a lot of these giant drug companies. I mean, if you were in a giant drug company, maybe not you, you would quit. But if you decided you wanted to make a career getting to the top of one of these giant drug companies and uh, you sat around in your research and development, 
and you were thinking like, well, how can we make the most money? How we how can we do it? Um, well, why why not? Uh, we've got all these other competition, um, and it's difficult to find a drug for something like an antibiotic, and um, and there's a lot of competition. Why not come up? Why not put in our use all PR and use all our money? We know we've done it before. We've done it with a lot of other mental illnesses. Why not sit down and, and create, in fact, a whole new mental illness of, of something that people just don't like? And that's what you yeah. know. That's exactly what they did with social anxiety. So they hired a PR firm. They got you know they they came up with a slogan. I don't know if you remember the slogan. Imagine being allergic to people. That was their slogan. <laughs> and they just took folks out there, parents. Um, who wanted their kids to be super popular and super extroverted, but they had normal, shy kids. Many of these kids would have outgrown their shyness. Some of them wouldn't have. Who cares? They would have been okay. And they just decided to tell these folks that, no, they've got this disease called social anxiety disorder and open up a whole new market for Paxil and these other drugs. And that's what happens when you have a society where um, you're going to allow folks who are basically sociopathic, I mean, sociopathic means that you don't care. You have zero morality. All you care about is is making the most possible money that you can for yourself. And when they get to dictate policy, um, which they can do, they, it's very easy to buy a psychiatrist. They're very inexpensive prostitutes, and you know, create whatever kind of research, create whatever kind of diagnosis you want. You're going to have deep trouble in society. So that's really the core problem of all of this. That I think is, if you want to kind of get to the bottom of solving a whole bunch of problems in our society we have to kind of take a look at that at that phenomenon that dynamic yeah there's there's a few things i'd like to throw in unless you're holding sarah you holding hey go ahead okay well on the topic of uh, sociopaths and this is something we uh probably going to hit on in the movie later on these drugs themselves essentially create sociopaths or at least in varying degrees because they emotionally numb the person you know, emotion is the very basis of a conscience. If you can't feel and empathize, you don't have a conscience. I think that has a lot to do with some of these events, you know, these massacres that have happened after people have taken these drugs because they, they just don't care. They have no empathy, no no connectedness to the rest of humanity after, you know, they've been zombified enough. And in fact, that, that really ties into its high use in the military, too. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think the research and common sense backs up what both of you are saying. I mean, if you take a look at a lot of these, for example, teen shooters or some of these other folks who kind of run amok, um, routinely they have, they're taking some kind of a psychiatric drug, some kind of psychotropic drug. And what we know among, you know, is, and for anybody out there, who's ever taken these drugs, this would be obvious to them for folks who are uh, virginal here that they've never experienced any kind of psychodrug. Maybe, maybe they've done some alcohol and then they could experience that. Um, and that's kind of a, that's also a psychotropic drug. And what happens is, is clearly what you're saying is you become disconnected from your emotions. That's why people do these drugs is it takes the edge off. That's exactly the major reason. And for some folks, you know, when they take, when they have a couple of drinks and it takes the edge off, they don't get crazy, they don't get violent, they don't do horrible things. Um, but for a lot of other folks, they do. I mean, most suicides, most homicides, a lot of them happen because of alcohol, because it's what we call a disinhibiting thing. So in other words, when you don't have any kind of alcohol or psychiatric drugs on board, it's more likely you know, you're going to, number one, feel, have like what you say, empathy, but you're more likely also, too, to kind of 
not do something really different than what you've ever done before in your life. You're not likely to move into sort of something, just think about something and act on it. Um, whereas if you've got drugs on board, whether they're illegal drugs or psychiatric drugs, it's much more likely you're going to have some crazy thought and you're going to go like, hey, you know, I feel like punching that guy out. Maybe I'll punch that guy out or I feel like killing myself right now. Maybe I'll just go ahead and do it. You break with certain habits, like I said, called disinhibiting. So there's a lot of different reasons besides what you've talked about where you just lose your emotions and lose your capacity to have empathy that create the scenario that makes it more likely. And this is one of the the more, I don't know what you want to call it, ironic, comical, tragic kind of things is that they're selling antidepressants, what they call antidepressants. But we know, and they actually have finally admitted it, and this is FDA black box warning, that these, with young people, at least they admit it for young people, children, teenagers, young adults, that they actually increase double, double the likelihood you're going to have uh, suicidal thoughts, uh, double the likelihood you're going to have a suicide attempt, because of everything that we're talking about here. So for me, it's dark comedy. It's black comedy to say something is antidepressant when it's going to double the risk that you're going to make a suicide attempt. So you're saying that's not only because of the lack of emotion, but also because of an increase in impulsivity? Yeah, exactly. I mean, an increase of your inability to just kind of check yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and exactly what you're talking about. That's, that's impulsivity. You know, we all of us, as being human beings, we get a wide range of things. I mean, there's lots of people um, with certain temperaments, artistic temperaments. They may think about suicide once a week or a few times a month. It just goes through their head. It's part of them being um, feeling pain and feeling all kinds of things. But it goes through their head and they release it. It's not that big of an event. Certainly, a lot of teenagers are walking around and they they have certain temperaments, certain personalities, very sensitive. And it's not unusual for them to have those kinds of thoughts go through their head. But on these drugs, it's more likely for you to take those thoughts seriously and actually act on them. Whereas when you're not on these drugs or not drinking on alcohol, it's very different. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sir, you got anything for him? Uh, no, I'm good right now. i got a few things to throw at you. I'll throw the easy one at you first. I've noticed that... In the kids, they're drugged, you know, in the schools. They're given, you know, these SSRIs, antidepressants, stimulants, you know, the whole plethora. It's always the gifted leaders. It's never just the kid that just keeps to himself and doesn't cause any trouble in class. Basically, we've had several generations now where our leaders have just been chemically wiped out, I think. That's the way I see it. What do you think? Well, it's... What you're saying is one of the, probably there's no bigger reason why I've gotten into the whole movement, whatever you want to call it, the mental health treatment reform movement. That's my major reason, what you, what you talked about. It is the political one of like my fear, and I saw this happening with your age group, exactly what was going on. We were, we were taking the folks who were most likely to be um, healthy rebels and resist um, illegitimate authority out there, and we were drugging them, diagnosing them, behaviorally manipulating them to oblivion. And one of the stories, um, you know, for me, I I love to read biographies of our most famous resistant um, organizing, rebellious kind of people and take a look at what they were like when they were young. And, you know, one I just came across recently was an organizer, a guy named Saul Alinsky, who wrote a book called Rules for Radicals and Reveille for Radicals. And he's sort of like read by all across the political spectrum, um, whether they agree with his ideology or not, because he was very good at creating resistance 
and being able to sort of transform institutions. And he talks about when he was a kid, uh, he talks about that he would see a sign and he would never have, he would see a sign that said, stay off the grass. And he remembered being a little kid that he had no desire to go on the grass until he saw a sign that said, stay off the grass. And then he would see the sign and go on the grass and stomp all over it because that's who he was. He was, he was, and, and, and those are some of the kind of people, and that would be a textbook oppositional defiant disorder. I mean, I don't think any psychiatrist in the world would say, oh, yeah, that guy, you know, if I didn't say who the name was, if I described some kid who immediately, when somebody told him that he couldn't do it, you know, he, he went ahead and did it in spite of them, that that sort of defines that thing of oppositional defiant disorder. Well, in the 80s, when that thing came out, people were just using behavior modification. Now we know. Um, increasingly, they're using psychiatric drugs, heavy-duty psychiatric drugs, antipsychotic drugs. In fact, if you're an impoverished kid, you're a Medicaid kid, you have a huge likelihood of being uh, put on uh, Zyprexa or Risperdal or one of these antiseroquel if you get a diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder. And so every kind of junior Saul Linsky, we can go through the whole list of folks who were for across the political spectrum when they were younger, they would be most likely, if they fell into the hands of a school counselor or psychiatrist, they would be medicated. And I do think that is one of the many reasons um, why you see such passivity, political passivity and lack of resistance. And in uh, the book I got out now, Get Up, Stand Up, that's one of my chapters, sub-chapters on how psychiatry, how psychology, how the mental health professionals are um, eliminating uh, resistance. There's, there's other factors out there as well. There's many other institutions out there. As Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, the wave of evil washes over all our institutions alike. So psychiatry, I don't, I don't mean to say that mental health professionals are solely responsible for our passivity. There's a lot of other institutions involved in this too. Yeah, it's kind of like in the 1970s. Uh, late 60s, early 70s, I believe. I'm, I'm too young to really remember. But there was a lot of political unrest about illegitimate wars at that time. In particular, I believe Vietnam was at the forefront. And there was a lot of movement, a lot of action, a lot of change in this country because of that. Nowadays, if someone were to try to rebel or get something started, they'd have a mental illness. Right. <laughs> they, would, they wouldn't be a dissident. They'd have a mental illness. Right, and this was really one of the really sad things that's happened in our societies. We used to laugh about this, about the Soviet Union in the 1960s and 70s. They were very famous for taking any political dissonance that they had um, and labeling them with a mental illness and sending them, sending and medicating them on Thorazine, Haldol, and all that. And that was common knowledge in the United States that that was something that totalitarian societies did, like the Soviet uh -huh. Union. That always and, happened somewhere and, else. Exactly. And now mm -hmm. that that same thing is happening here, and even worse here, because we're doing it with children who, who are really more defenseless, who haven't, um, who haven't been able to kind of fight this off. It's not happening to sort of 25, 35-year-old political dissidents who can maybe make a comeback off of this. And so really, in, in a lot of ways, what we're doing here in the United States today is, is worse than what was done in these other totalitarian societies to uh, adult dissonance, use of psychiatry, um, to just basically shut them up and to marginalize them and to shut them up. Yeah. And I think we're kindred spirits in that when we think about it, we get a chill, too. It's happening here now. Sarah, you got anything or you want me to go ahead? Oh, right, go ahead. Sure. Um, I'm going to hit you with a big one now, Bruce, but I think it's up your alley if I've read you right. Are you a fan of Jung's work, Carl Jung? 
you know, I'm, I know some stuff about Carl Jung, and um, I, I, I would say um, some of it's interesting. You know, mm-hmm. who he is is somewhat problematic. Um, I, I wouldn't call myself a Carl Jung scholar by any means. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm a fan, and I feel that anybody that works in the field of psychiatry, they they really can't get enough Jung, as far as I'm concerned, but <laughs> I'll move on. Okay. Um, you may or may not know that Dr. Jung was involved in the creation of Alcoholics Anonymous. I do know that. I do know that. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of work with drug issues, drug dependence, and so forth. The people he worked with and the original AA had spectacular success rates. And one of the things that he pushed that ended up being one of the charter foundations of AA is that these problems, these drug problems, are caused by emotional problems. And if you keep tracing them back down to their root, it leads back to what Jung called was spiritual impoverishment. Mm -hmm. This need or this longing for something bigger and better. Pretty much everybody felt, but some people were better at, at admitting it than other people were. And that over time, as we become more scientific and have convinced ourselves that we've become a more rational, secular society, we've actually lost some things in our society that held society itself together, like this common belief in a heavenly father, for instance, and so forth. People really had to deal with that issue before they could recover, whether it be a chemical addiction or a depression. Of course, the two go together very closely. I've listened to some of your lectures, and you hit on this this theme about this pervasive sense of loss and hopelessness that, that exists in society today, particularly among the young people. And I was, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say. Well, I think that is a huge part of why people get into serious problems out there, and is that they're not told that a lot of the way that you kind of move out of not just substance abuse or alcohol problems, but depression and a lot of other things is that you develop some belief in something um, that you really care about larger than who you are, and you develop um, some kind of faith in something. Now, this could be, depending on your personality, depending on your ideology, a, a wide range of things out there. So on a kind of I don't know, sort of silly level, the really the way that any of these anti- antidepressants work, and we know from scientific studies, is, is they work on mostly on a placebo level. So if you could convince yourself that uh, to have faith and believe in Prozac or Paxil or whatever, that's going to make those things work. And we know this from scientific studies. If you have a huge expectation of this, it'll make those things work a lot better. But for a lot of young people and a lot of people overall, they don't want to have faith in this. They don't want to believe in it, first of all, for a lot of reasons. And so it doesn't really work that well. And I think one of the things that I talk about is that the transforming element for a lot of people with serious problems really does, when you take a look at it, has to do with what scientists call expectations or the placebo effect and what other the rest of the world calls belief or faith. And what you want to do if you're out there and you're struggling, you've got serious problems, is to understand that. And then what you have to ask yourself is like, well, what do I really want to believe in? What do I really want to have faith in? Because there's certain things out there in life that you can't choose. You cannot choose to have faith that 2 plus 2 equals 5. I mean, I don't think you can. There's a lot of things that are just reality. 
there's certain things that are just facts that have nothing to do with belief or faith. But a, most of li- a lot of life, anyways, for example, whether life is worth living, whether it's significant, whether you have any point, um, there's a lot of questions that are just questions of belief and faith. And how you respond to that, you know, what you decide to believe in, or if you decide to believe in nothing, that's going to have a huge consequences quite pragmatically in your life. If you just, if you're miserable and you're depressed and you're substance abusing, you say, "I'm not going to believe in anything. I'm not going to have faith in anything." Well, good luck trying to move out of that. If you decide um, to believe in things that are problematic. Um, you know, and, and Prozac and Paxil, so that's not the only thing that's problematic. There are people who believe in, well, you know, they believe in um, fascism. You know, they believe in uh, Joseph Goebbels was a uh, major depressive, and his cure was to believe in Hitler and the Nazi party. Well, that was not so wonderful for the rest of the world. Um, and so there's a lot of things that you could choose to believe in and have faith in that may work temporarily for yourself that are deeply problematic. So the real issue, and when we pull out of psychiatry and pull out of their mumbo-jumbo of SSRIs and chemical imbalance theories, and we move out of this stuff where, uh, to use my phrase, I mean, let's use other people's phrase about them, is they're, they're not even wrong. They're not even, they're not even worth talking about. The real debate is a psychological, social, political, philosophical, spiritual debate is what are you going to really believe in? What are you going to have faith in? And that's where psychology and philosophy um, and politics, that's where life gets a lot more interesting again. And so the other deep problem I should tell you about, about mental health professionals, besides all the stuff that they're talking about that's just wrong, is that they're bores. They're just not talking about anything fun and interesting and useful and helpful. Please check us out and read our reports at the HealthWise Report website. You can find us on the internet at healthwise.org. Take special note that WISE is spelt W-Y-Z-E. We spell it W-Y-Z-E to emphasize wisdom. We are a not-for-profit organization, although we are not registered as a not-for-profit, non-profit, or any other classification with any governmental agency. Nevertheless, we are a non-profit organization, so we're always needing donors to help us to continue our work, whether it be the equipment for these radio shows, our website and network infrastructure, various fees for our movie productions, and of course, the occasional video game to help us maintain our sanity through it all. If you are someone who cannot donate, or who does not wish to, you can also support us by visiting our online store. That can also be found at healthwise.org, and again, WISE is spelt W-Y-Z-E. We have to be careful about what claims we make about our products, including claims that can be verified, because we know of at least one governmental agency that would like to shut us down. We can tell you that in our opinion, our colloidal copper lotion has qualities that cannot be found in any other lotion sold, anywhere else. So, if you have joint or skin problems of any kind, we recommend that you check out our lotion. The HealthWise Report staff also offers hosting, networking, and technical support for anyone who wants to have their own website or assistance with internet technologies. Our technical skills place us among the best of the best. Thanks for listening to this. We'll get back to the show now. I know there are people out there that are probably listening and are taking a, a certain psychotropic medication and they feel like it's doing wonders for them. Some cases that may actually be true. But I have a personal experience, as I told you, I was a Ritalin kid. I think maybe what I went through is similar to a stage that a lot of people out there are still going through, a stage that is perpetuating the cycle. It started out with me, of course, going to a psychiatrist, being prescribed Ritalin. And I must tell you, I was very defiant to an extreme. 
I mean, I was insulted that somebody thought I needed to go to a psychiatrist. I fought it tooth and nail. Then when they tried to prescribe me a medicine to alter me mentally, you know, a mind-affecting drug, that was just the icing on the cake. But I was pressured and pushed over and over again by people who told me, this is what you need. You need to take this stuff. It will help you. Trust us. It's safe, so forth. So I finally took the medicine. And it was Ritalin. I'd never had anything in it like it before. Within a matter of an hour, I was high as a kite. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was in ecstasy. People tell me that that night I stayed up pretty much all night talking as fast as a professional auctioneer. <laughs> I, I, was, I was in complete fast forward. And I needed right. no sleep. I didn't need to eat. I didn't need to sleep. I felt so good. I, I didn't feel as much pain. I could get out there on the training field and, and run circles around them. I felt like Superman. And, of course, that's one of the mental effects of the drug, too. It doesn't just stimulate you, but it creates this sense of overconfidence, just like cocaine would. Right. It went from being angry to being fairly happy with the drug. And over a period of time, period of days, weeks, I don't remember. It's been so long ago. I slowly convinced myself that I need this drug. I need to stay on this drug. It's good for me. It's helping me because it felt so darn good. I'm just wondering how many people out there who either are taking a drug that's making them feel good or who are just feeling good because the drug helps prevent them from dealing with their issues that they need to deal with instead of oppressing them until they fester into something that's going to explode eventually. I wonder how many people you know, are stuck at that point. They don't realize – they don't, they don't realize what's healthy anymore because the drug itself is affecting how they see things, how they see themselves. Right, right. I know it's a wonderful kind of a, uh, in terms of pure uh, sort of sociopathic capitalism, it's a wonderful product that they have for a lot of people out there. If you could just kind of break people down, which it sounds like what had happened to you, they had everyone assaulting you, you, every part of your soul and your gut and your brain and your critical thinking was fighting this thing off, and they finally broke you, and then they gave you some stuff that not only gave you a certain kind of buzz uh, that made you feel good, and you know it has a different effect on different people. For some people, it's just an unbelievably uncomfortable feeling to be on amphetamines, but for other folks, it's what you described. I mean, there is a certain kind of buzz, a kind of cocaine-like um, buzz, which is what happened to you. And then the other part of it happens is just like when you're on any kind of psychotropic drug, you lose your critical thinking about really what's going on. And then another basic psychological phenomenon happens, the whole phenomenon of cognitive dissonance, that once you've bought into sort of something, once you've complied and you've bought in, you are much more vulnerable to kind of come up with all kinds of reasons why it's a good idea. Um, and that's what happens to patients and that's what happens to doctors. Again, it takes a huge, vigorous kind of critical thinking to, to not move into that cognitive dissonance, and it's almost impossible when you're on some kind of psychotropic drugs. It's almost, you know, that goes away. Uh, it's a very difficult thing yeah. to do. So, so that's part of what you're talking about. Is, is there's multiple problems to one's psyche once you start getting involved with these drugs. Yeah. Well, by the time I got to college, I had convinced myself and rationalized it. I had convinced myself so much that I needed the drug, that I needed it to succeed, especially sure. academically. I had reached a point to where I would have told the, uh, the doctor anything just to keep, keep him prescribing it. Sure. And I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to admit that now, but that's how much of a hook the drug had on me. Sure. I mean, what the heck? I mean, you know, you're talking about 
something. I mean, it's these are amphetamines. I mean, that's what people need to keep describe over and over again. These are not just these kind of simple, little simple uh, aspirin um, medicate. You know, it's not a simple medicine here. And so, of course, I mean, that's what happens. People get addicted to it and they start to crave it. And without it, you know, and the other problem is is that your body adapts to it. And if you, whereas before, if you weren't using any of them, um, maybe you would feel not quite as good as when you were on them. But if you take them for a certain period of time and you don't have them at all, you really feel horrible. So mm-hmm. you need a certain amount just to kind of like yeah. stay even. So well, you move into kind of physiological and psychological dependency yeah. on, the, on them. Yeah. Well, out of all of them, I think probably Ritalin, which is what I took, is the safest of all still, you know, out of these type of drugs. But even Ritalin being, being the drug that's referred to as being as safe as aspirin does have its drawbacks in the long term. It's like dealing with the devil. There's always a secret price to be paid. And because I was on Ritalin for, gosh, something like 10 years straight, Mm -hmm. um, my body learned to build up a tolerance to it, to adapt and to resist it. And because of that, I have a very slow metabolism. I have to sort of be careful. If I were to (laughs) eat, eat like most people do, I'd probably balloon out like a basketball now. Mm hmm. And I, I just wonder how many people are, are in that boat. I, I mean, I'm not sure it really adds to the discussion, but I, it's just something interesting you may not have heard before. Right. No, I have. I have. I mean, and, um, and, and, and you know, what you're saying is just, it just adds on the long-term, short-term adverse effects physically, psychologically, mm-hmm. all for no problem. You know, usually to begin with, all for a situation where somebody was not compliant behaviorally or cognitively, attentionally, and there was good reason for it. So you've created all kinds of iatrogenic, um, medically produced problems here um, for nothing. You know, it's just, it's a tragedy. And I think we're sitting on a slow ticking time bomb now because not only, you know, the, the obvious problems with the dangers of the drugs and what they make people do, but we're like in generation two now, of not having any really good leaders because the the leaders were all drugged up, you know, because they were the troublemakers. Right. Expanding on what Thomas was saying earlier about feeling good whilst you're on the drug and all, I've noticed in my research of these drugs, there are some people who decide that they don't want to be on drugs anymore. So they decide to start coming off. And then when they stop taking their drugs or they lower their dose, they don't feel as good. And they assume that that's because, well, they need the drug. Without that drug, they won't be who they really are. They won't be a great person. They have some sort of chemical imbalance. They have a genetic disorder. Whatever it is, they're not right, and so they need this drug. And in fact, what's really going on is that in the case of Paxil, within two days, and in the case of Prozac, within five or six days, they're going through a sort of withdrawal as the drug comes out of their system. What's really causing that feeling of being lack of themselves, feeling extremely depressed, and so forth, they have no idea. Right, and that, that's, that's one of the areas where uh, those of us who are kind of psychiatrists, psychology dissidents folks who have uh, had some success and finally it becoming common knowledge out there that there is this kind of uh, withdrawal that goes on or what as the euphemism of the uh, of the psychiatrists, they call it the discontinuation syndrome. It's this kind of Orwellian euphemism they use to, because they're terrified of using the word withdrawal. And I think that's the one good thing that's happened over the last 10 years. At least there's lots of awareness among uh, people now that they even admitted, even establishment psychiatry admits 
um, that this withdrawal happens. But but for me, um, it's still repugnant that these folks, anybody who knows anything about psychotropic drugs, okay, should know that these affect these neurotransmitters. They cause shutdown of certain tra- receptors, and they cause when any time that you give these to folks, um, your body moves into kind of homeostatic mechanisms, which which create withdrawal. And so for me, any time that they come out with a psychiatric drug, one of the their marketing pitches is, aha, we found a new one, that there's no dependency, no withdrawal, and all that. And um, and they've got to know, unless they're complete ignoramuses, of which case they shouldn't be allowed to say anything, but they've got to know. It's just got to be a lie. Anytime you affect dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine and all these kinds of uh, neurotransmitters, you're going to create um, a, a body's compensation to it that's going to create withdrawal when people go off of it. And that's just physics, okay? That's neurochemistry physics here. That's just obvious. And so when they come out with any kind of new drug, which they always do after one of these drugs go off patent, now Prozac's off patent, so they always come out with a new group of drugs, and then their big marketing pitch is, aha, we found something that doesn't create a dependency, doesn't create withdrawal. And that's where... Um, it's just enraging because it's just one of those facts of life that that's going to happen, whether you're using alcohol or you're using any kind of thing that affects um, these neurotransmitters, you're going to have that kind of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. I remember back when I was um, probably 14 years old, and after being told that I was crazy by numerous um, bad authority figures in my life, I um, was prescribed um, amitriptyline, otherwise known as Elevil. Right, 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 uh, right, right. Um, and... I remember after that, I actually began to um, feel crazy and have illusions and so forth. And um, fortunately, in my case, because I was in the UK at the time, there were some other doctors somewhere that caught wind of the fact that I'd been prescribed it and said, no, we can't do that. She's under 18. This is crazy. And so I was pulled off within a matter of about a month. But in a lot of cases, particularly in the United States and in this, in this era, when people start becoming um, becoming crazy or, or having illusions and hallucinations and so forth on one of these drugs, it isn't deemed to be a side effect of the drug that's often not considered. And instead, what they'll do is that they add, they'll add more psychotropic drugs until they can get a big enough cocktail so that the person isn't complaining about side effects anymore. Right, and this is the whole thesis of what Robert Whitaker uh, has written about an uh, anatomy of an epidemic, and I've spent a lot of this last year trying to help get the word out on that. That's exactly one of his major points. Is one of the the major reasons from his research of why you have these huge increases of uh, people with serious psychiatric diagnoses, these huge swelling, increasing numbers of folks on uh, disability, increasing numbers of children on disability. For him. It's quite obvious it has to do with the, uh, their start on psychiatric drugs. They, st- they start them off on Ritalin or Adderall or one of these, and these drugs themselves turn folks into a full-blown craziness, uh, whatever you want to call it, bipolar, psychotic, all these kinds of things. And that, so you know, there's a bunch of different reasons why we have more and more uh, people labeled with mental illness in this in this country. I mean, that's not the only reason, but for sure, I agree with Whitaker. That is a major reason why um, you, you see more and more of uh, people, young people. I mean, when I was you know when I was starting out, you'd almost never have a kid labeled with bipolar disorder. And so one of the reasons today is just idiotic pathologizing of, of moody behavior. There's nothing really going on. It's just a normal moody kid. But 
One of the other things that happen is, is you start these kids out at four, five, six, seven years old on Ritalin, on Adderall, one of these kinds of ADHD drugs, is, is you're more likely to make them really crazy, manicky and nuts. And that's the, like I said, that's the a big thesis of what Robert Whitaker's talked about in uh, Anatomy of Epidemic. Bruce, we're going to try not to keep you on a whole lot longer. We've had you on about an hour now, and I'm, okay. I'm sure you've got important stuff you'd like to be doing. Uh, I was going to throw another one at you if you you got a few minutes. Sure, sure. Let's go for one more, man. Okay. One thing we've noticed, and this sort of parallels orthodox medicine as well as psychiatry. At one point back in history, the goal, the agenda, was to cure patients of their disorders, whatever those disorders might happen to be. Now, they don't even try. Now, what they do is they treat symptoms. They do treatments, not curing. And there's a whole system, and I think maybe it ties back into the whole authoritarian control sort of thing. What they do is they take a patient and they create him into a perpetual customer. He never gets off the train because they don't try to fix anything. Right. I mean, that that is, again, I, I guess, goes back to this kind of under underlying problem of when you make medicine a profit-making, corporate-controlled institution. Why would you, again, if you're at the top of one of these drug companies, one of these major pharmaceutical companies, would you really want to cure a patient? Why wouldn't you want to have everybody out there who's depressed be convinced that they have this you know, chemical imbalance and they didn't have what, you know, they didn't have this just stretch in their life where they were bummed out and they're depressed and they passed through it and and, and they're going to be okay um, because it's a kind of normal human event. Why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to convince people that, uh, that they have this disease for life? And why wouldn't you want to use the diabetes analogy or whatever kind of analogy to convince folks that they have something that they have to be on medication for the rest of your life? It, it just, it's just pretty simplistic way to make easy money. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of folks out there, that may sound uh, cynical. They may say, oh my God, there there are ethical and there are moral people who work for drug companies and who work in all these institutions. There are. A lot of these people quit. A lot of these people just hold their nose. And the kind of dynamics of an institution overwhelm any uh, any person's uh, individual morality. So I get contacted all the time by people who've worked for drug companies, and they tell me stuff that's even more awful than I even imagine. And they've quit, or they've gotten fired. I mean, it does happen. I don't mean to say everybody who works in any of these kinds of places are bad people, but the logic of the institution overwhelms any kind of individual morality. And if the logic of the institution is we're going to do whatever we t- it takes to make as much money as possible, those kinds of things that you're talking about are going to happen where you, there is no incentive to cure people. There is an incentive to convince people that they need to be on more and more medications um, mm-hmm. for, the, for the rest of their life. Well, Bruce, I'll tell you what I think is even crazier, even more bizarre, is that our society as a whole has been trained to just simply accept this, that you go to the doctor for treatment. Now, why? Why would any sane, rational person go to a doctor knowing full well ahead of time that doctor is not going to cure him? He's not going to try. Right. To and, me, that's, that, and that's it. And that's why I've gotten into, and that's what the last book did up stand up, is that's why I've gotten into the more fundamental underlying problem, not just psychiatry and psychology, is the whole kind of pacifying of the whole society here. That is a very deep problem that you've kind of lost people out there who are 
either a questioning authority or have the morale or energy or spirit to actually act on their questioning of authority, and that really becomes the deeper problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I think there are a lot of the few undrugged people out there who see how crazy it all is, for the most part feel too beaten down and, and too impotent to do anything about it. But I do think people can do something about it, and a big part of that is getting the word out. That's why we're doing what we're doing. I'm hoping more people out there will speak up and just, you know, say, damn it, I'm not going to take it anymore. Right, right. Well, that's what I'm hoping. That's what uh, I'm trying to pull off. Thanks, Bruce. Um, okay, you're, you're quite welcome. Everyone, we've reached the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed it. We've got other shows you can listen to at our website in our audio archives. So pay us a visit at healthwise.org, with wise being spelt W-Y-Z-E. This is Thomas signing out. Until next time, toodaloo.